0: Continue with the Beatitudes. I told Sarah wrong. We'll be in 6 through 10, not 6 through 12. Matthew 5, 6 through 10. Matthew 5, verses 6 through 10. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A while back, I can't remember how long, and this is not a... This wasn't new at the time, but there was a movie that came out called The Bucket List. And we know what a bucket list It's things to do before you die. Things that you must do so that you can be considered to have lived a long and full and happy life. These are the things that people think have meaning. Life can't be finished, can't be full, till I've done these things. And yet... Jesus teaches something different. That the the pursuit, the quest for happiness is the pursue and quest for righteousness. Righteousness leads to godliness. If the disciple hungers for righteousness, then Jesus will come and satisfy their hunger. Last week, We looked at the demeanor, if we want to call it, of the blessed life, that we are to be poor in spirit, that we are to be those who mourn, that we are to be the meek. But now we will see the action of blessedness, that we are to be merciful, for we have received mercy, that we are to be pure in heart, that we are to be peacemakers. So as we come to this text, I want us to see three things. We will see the pursuit of a godly character. Second, we'll see the pursuit of a righteous life. And then finally, we'll see the pursuit of a blessed, of a happy life. Let's begin by looking at the pursuit of a godly character. What does it mean to have a godly character? What are the things that make us who we are? Some people say, or philosophers say... That you are who you are at birth. That how you're born to be, that is how you will be. That your personality will not change through life. However, this is not true. We know that character is something that is more malleable, that is more shapeable. We know that, that we will see that people gain and they lose morals. Liars and thieves can become honest. Good politicians, policemen, and others can become dishonest. Aristotle said this, we become just by doing just acts. Temperate by doing temperate acts. Brave by doing brave acts. An action repeated over and over and over again becomes a habit. Once ingrained in us a habit becomes either a virtue or a vice. Many are drawn to this concept. This is a a good concept to many. They adopt the practice that suggests they are dignified that they are an honorable person. They believe that they are what they do at least in public private thoughts, private traits matter very little. Public perception is the only thing that matters. Character then is not something that is in us. It is a role that we play. But this is not what Jesus talks about here. John Piper says that humility, true humility, which is a biblical virtue, can only can only survive in the presence of God. Scripture looks to the heart, to the inner man, to the inner life, and it looks for more than just a public presentation of character. This is not something that Jesus sought in his own ministry. As we will see, he was not just about how he presented himself, But about his inward, how he acted from within. As we come to the Beatitudes, all of the Beatitudes, we find the very presence of God. And at first it is somewhat not seen as we begin in verse 3 with the poor in spirit. It says, For those is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those of the meek, for they shall see or inherit the earth. We go on and see the mercy will receive mercy. And it isn't until verse 8 that God is mentioned, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But what we see is throughout these things, God's hands are in the blessings. He is the one who gives the kingdom to heaven. He is the one who comforts. He is the one who shows mercy. God is the agent in all these promises. This is what God says he gives to those who have a real, true, inward character. One that is like their Savior. Of those who seek and pursue righteousness. We looked at this verse last week, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst... For righteousness, but I think it is important that we look at it again. It is the pivotal blessing here, as we see what the godly life looks like, what the demeanor of a godly life looks like. And then s- soon we'll look at the last or the next three, which are the actions of that godly life. But it all hinges on this this chapter six or verse six. Blessed are those who hunger. And thirst for righteousness. And this is our second point, the pursuit of righteousness. It is important to hunger, to thirst for righteousness. This is a a longing, as we talked about, for God. If we seek the kingdom, if we seek to be citizens in the kingdom, then we must seek the king. David in Psalm 42, verse 2 says... My soul's thirst for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? We are to thirst for God like this, to long, to come, to appear before him. This is a personal longing. This is a longing that is deep inside of us. But it's also more than personable. We long for God to change us, yes, But we also long for God to transform society. We long to see not only the king reign in our lives, but to see the king reign throughout all the earth. And yet in spite of all this, we know we cannot live perfectly righteous. We know that the goal, the goal for perfect righteousness is outside Of our grasp. But this should not lead us at any time to despair. It should make us long all the more for the day. When we get to be in the presence of God. When Jesus will come again. When we will hunger. When we will thirst no more. For we will be perfectly righteous. We are to long for when God comes. And his righteousness will cover the earth. We are to pursue righteousness, personal righteousness, public righteousness, even knowing that it will not come in its fullness. But we are to pursue it longing for the day when it will come. But far too often, much <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> far too often mature Christians settle into a dull routine and this is something I think we are all guilty of. I know that we're all guilty of. We come and we are just not passionate. We have no passion for becoming more righteous. Or on the other hand, we have misdirected passion. We're passionate about gaining possession, about gaining prestige, about gaining power and authority. But Jesus calls us. And he He calls us to hunger, to thirst for proper, for right passions, for righteousness. As we look at the next three Beatitudes, we'll see what this looks like in our life the life that pursues righteousness. And each one corresponds to one of our first three. If you are poor in spirit, you will be merciful. If you are a mourner who mourns over your sin, you will become pure in heart. If you are meek, if you put others above yourself, then you will be a peacemaker. The first three Beatitudes are Beatitudes of need, we could say. They show us our neediness. But the next three, after the, the pivotal fourth one, are Beatitudes of action. Righteousness being at its center. And we see a beautiful picture here. That of, at the center of what all we do, at the center of knowing our neediness, and knowing what we should do to pursue a godly life, is righteousness. We can never labor this point too much. If I came up here every Sunday and talked about the need for righteousness, that we must pursue righteousness at all times. You may grow weary and tired of it, but it is something that we need to focus on. The pursuit of righteousness is something we should be doing at all times. Just as it is at the center of these beatitudes, it should be at the center of our life. At all times, we should be seeking righteousness And as we seek righteousness, we will become more like our Savior. And now let's look at these. This is our third point where we'll spend most of our time today. The pursuit of a blessed life. First he says here, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Again, the first flows from the first here we recognize our spiritual weakness, when we know that we're poor in spirit, when we know that we're needy, when we know that there's nothing that we can do for ourselves, and that Jesus Christ, the King of the universe, came and died for us, that while we were yet sinners, He died for us. He showed us the greatest mercy, the mercy that we could not ever rightly deserve when we understand this, when we understand our neediness and the mercy that has been given to us, what is the correct response? It's to show mercy to others. If you know the depravity, the sinfulness of your own heart, if you know that Jesus has come and forgiven it, all that sin, then how can you not be merciful to others? To have received mercy, to have a proper understanding Of your sin. Out of this flows the giving of mercy. As a result, we become tender. We become empathetic. We become patient. We become compassionate of the fallings of others. Knowing our own fallings. Our own failings, excuse me. And so we don't tear down. We don't criticize We ask, how can we help? The poor in spirit are the merciful. Mercy is a gift to mankind. God comes and he gives mercy to us. But it's also a demand from God. He requires mercy. He desires mercy from us. Jesus, as we go through the book of Matthew, stresses it as one of the more weightier Parts of the Christian life we think of, and we'll get to it, so I don't want to talk about it too much, but the the servant who is forgiven little, and then he goes to his fellow servant, or forgiven much, and he goes to his fellow servant and demands money. He was shown great mercy, but he showed no mercy himself. Jesus gives us mercy, and yet he demands us to show mercy as well. We don't have to look far to see examples of Jesus showing mercy. He has healed the crowds, He will feed 5,000, He will restore sight to the blind. He takes a widow's only son who has died and brings him back to life. Jesus showed great mercy. And so we, too, are to show mercy. The reality is, as I've even stated, we don't deserve Jesus' death. Do we really understand, do we fully appreciate the fact that while we were sinners, Christ died for us? While we were enemies of God, while we were strangers or estranged from God, he died for us. How does this affect how we treat each other? We think of mercy and we think of the needy and that is right and that is good. We are to go to the needy and to uh, give them money if they need money. We are to help them with their bills if they need help with bills. But we seldomly think of mercy in regards to those who have wronged us, to those who we think have slighted us. And yet we, as enemies with God, have wronged him and slighted him. We have done evil against him. And how does he show us mercy? He lays down his life. This goes against every fiber of what is in us. When someone wrongs you, what do you want to do? Let them know what they did or do it back. And yet Jesus says this is not what it means. Know your own neediness. Know your own poorness of spirit. Know that I have shown you mercy and show mercy to others. In doing this, that this means we have to make ourselves less and make others more. It is not something that is natural in us, but it is something we are called to work out to pursue righteousness, is to pursue mercy. But he goes on in verse eight: Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity in Scripture can mean one of two things. First, it can mean an inner moral holiness. This is the opposite of external piety. It's not just showing that you're doing good things, but it's an inner moral holiness. Moses called Israel not just to be circumcised physically, but he called them to circumcise their heart. It's more than just a physical representation. It's an inward representation. A purity. But purity also can mean the freedom from double-mindedness. This is not being pure just to gain a reward. And we do this sometimes, don't we? If I just do this, then I can get this at the end. It's being pure for purity's sake, not for the sake of the reward. If you... See a millionaire on the side of the road and you stop to help him, what are you hoping to help him for? The reward you can get from it, perhaps. But when you see the homeless on the side of the road or those who can't return, this is the motive of purity. And Jesus promotes both of these types of purity in Scripture. He's interested in both our internal and our external purity. These things have to match. In essence, Jesus says you must shun sin in all ways, in thought and in deed. This is what Jesus heavily rebuked the Pharisees for. They were all about external righteousness. They thought they were holding to the law, and yet they had no compassion or love for those around them. This is just the look of righteousness on the outside. But they were full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus comes. He says, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those that set their mind on the will of their master. Who seek to be pure even as he is pure. And this is something as a people we struggle greatly with. D.A. Carson says this, We, be, we be, being human beings, are a strange lot. We hear high moral injunction and glimpse just a little of the genuine beauty of perfect holiness and then prostitute the vision by dreaming about the ways others would hold us in high esteem if we were like that. The demand for genuine perfection loses itself in the lesser goal of external piety. The goal of pleasing the father is traded for its pygmy cousin. The goal of pleasing men. We see the idea, the notion of purity, and it excites us. And then we go, man, think about how people will like me if I'm this way. And we pervert purity. Again, we see that we have a correspondence here with the earlier Beatitude, the second one. Those who mourn over their sin will desire a pure heart. If you recognize the sin that is in you, the sinful thoughts, the sinful deeds, and you truly mourn over it, if you hate that sin, if you try to take that sin and rip it out of your life, then a consequence of that Is that you will be more pure. You will see God. To be pure in heart is to love without compromise. It's to love without compromise. We must shun dual loyalties, even as Jesus taught us you cannot serve two masters, you cannot love God and money. To pursue the Lord, to seek after him, to be called a child of the king, is to pursue purity. Do we seek purity as a virtue? This can mean any manner of things. I think we tend to think of purity as we think of purity rings. It's an outward, a sexual purity, and that is good and that is right. But I think we tend to stop there. Purity must affect all of our life. It's impurity in our anger towards each other. Do we hold grudges? Do we seek after things that we should not seek after? Are we trying to get a bigger house or whatever? Purity affects all of our life, not just sexuality. It affects our relationships. It affects how we view money. It affects how we view our job. It affects how we view everything, all of life. We cannot look at purity so singly. Finally here, he talks about peacemaking. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Again, The third and the seventh beatitude match up. If you are meek, then you will be a peacemaker. The meek become peacemakers for two reasons. The meek know they are without merit. If you are meek, then you know that you that you there's nothing in you that is good. They stop promoting themselves. They stop grasping at privilege at recognition. They stop demanding. When you are meek, you put yourself above others. And when you do this, you become a peacemaker. The meek don't seek to take advantage. People trust the meek because they are not angling. They're not trying and conniving and working for future favor. This is what it means to be meek. Are we meek? Are we peacemakers? True disciples have peace with the Lord. Anyone who shares the gospel of Christ, who shares in his gospel, I mean, is a peacemaker. However, having this peace does not always lead to earthly peace. Peacemaking is a process that takes several willing people. It is not good enough for just half of us to be peacemakers. We must all be peacemakers. We must all be willing to be meek, to put ourselves before others. Now peacemaking is not just the absence of conflict. We know that Jesus certainly made peace at times through conflict. Constructive conflict can achieve goals. But peacemaking is the maturity, it's well-being as God defines them. But peacemaking also has an inward, internal aspect. If you are discontent, that affects peace. If you're discontent, then you're always looking for the next thing to complain about, to gripe about. If you're envious, then that disturbs peace because you're looking for the next way that someone else has something you don't have. Jesus comes and says, you are to master sin. You are to be meek. You are to understand that there is nothing in you that should boast yourself up with that only in Jesus can we boast we have to master sin or there will be no peace do we seek peace or are we looking for things to the next problem the next thing do we seek the well being of others over our own well beings And that is a very difficult question because what is our first and primary response at most times? It's to seek our own well-being over the own well-being of others. And yet this is not what Jesus did for us. The survival of the fittest is not a biblical concept. Jesus did not seek his own well-being. What if he did seek his own well-being over us? As he sat in the garden, he would have said, N- you know what? I'm not going to do this. Yeah, I know you want me to die. You want me to go to the cross. But I'm going to take care of me and mine. What if Jesus did that? And of course, it's a hypothetical question. He would not have. He never would have. But if we are to be like Jesus, then we are to be this way. This is what he does for us we are to seek peace he is the great peacemaker he has bought for us peace between us and God he has reconciled God's wrath on us God's wrath that was completely just and completely right and he has satisfied that wrath through his life and death and resurrection and he calls us to do the same in his church with others to come, to be peacemakers, knowing the sinfulness of our own heart, knowing the sin that we bring. The Beatitudes, all that we've looked at, are not just a list of isolated virtues. They are a daunting and challenging character assessment. Brothers and sisters, are you poor in spirit? Do you understand your neediness? Are you those who mourn? Do you know your sin and mourn over it? Are you meek? Do you know that there's nothing in you that deserves to be held up, that only in Jesus can you boast? Do you hunger? Do you thirst for righteousness? Are you merciful? Are you pure in heart? Are you a peacemaker? If we all were honest with ourselves, we would say that we fail miserably in all of these. This is not just a a happy list of things to aspire to, but a brutal character assessment. They reveal our inability to attain the qualities of Jesus. We can't do it. At the end of it all, we can't do it. Jesus can. Jesus did. He came. The son of God. And he was all of these. And so as we hear these, as we see these, we don't look and say, I can't do it. We look and we come and say, Jesus has done it. He has accomplished it for us. And now we get to struggle and fight and claw to make this true of ourselves. But we cannot be content. We cannot be malnourished. We must hunger. We must thirst for righteousness. We must always be conforming to the image of Christ. Do you long? Does your soul yearn to be like your Savior? You daily thirsting and hungering for him. We are to have this thirst at all times. We are to doggedly pursue it. I think of my dog. We've been having problems with her lately. And she wants to get in the trash and on the table more than anything. We tell her no, and she's right back at it. Do you pursue righteousness like that? That no matter, even if you're pushed down, even if you're told no, you're right back at it. You've got to get to it. You've you got to go for it. Do you got to reach for it? Or do we, does the world push us down and we just tuck our tail between our legs, go find a spot on the floor and just lay down? Is that how we pursue righteousness? We are to put this blessed life, this pursuit of happiness, this pursuit of a happy life into action. We are to have an understanding of our condition before God. But we are to understand that we have a Savior. That he has bought us at a price. That we are called to live after a certain fashion. Do you long for righteousness? Brothers and sisters, it is my prayer for each of us that we would not grow content, but that we would long, that we would hunger, we would thirst for the righteousness that can only come from above. Let's pray. Dear most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you as those who are malnourished, and we come and we pray, make us hungry, make us thirsty, calls us to long for you, that we would know our own sin, that we would not boast in ourselves, that we would boast in you, that we would not hold ourselves above others, but that we would make ourselves low. And as a result, we would become more like you. We pray in Jesus' holy name.